Today, we begin a brand new series. We're using the words that Jesus shared, the very last words that he shared before he went back into heaven as the inspiration behind what we're going to be talking about today and over the next few weeks. After Easter, after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus actually was on earth for about 40 more days. And he spent those 40 days with his closest friends and closest followers. But Paul also writes in one of his letters to the church in Corinth that Jesus also appeared to over 500 people after the resurrection. Kind of puts a damper on those who are trying to spin the narrative that he is still dead and he didn't resurrect, right? Like if that was the story that the religious leaders are trying to spread in the countryside, it really, it really hurts your story when the guy that you're saying is dead is walking around having meals with people, right? But often we'll talk about the resurrection of Jesus, but we don't really spend too much time talking about what happened after that resurrection. He was on earth for another 40 days, loving and serving and teaching his first disciples and interacting with over 500 people. And it's not just what the Bible records. It's what history records. And then Jesus takes his, his first 12 disciples. There are 11 of them now because Judas had betrayed Jesus and took his life after the crucifixion of Jesus because of the sorrow and the heartbreak that he experienced because he thought he was doing something right and it led to the death of Jesus. And so Jesus in 11 of the first disciples are on a mountainside. Some theologians believe this is the same mountainside that Jesus taught what's called the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew's letter, Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus shares some really powerful words. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, teaching them everything that I've taught you, making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Essentially what Jesus is sharing with them in that moment influences every one of our moments. Jesus is saying, tell the world about me, about the hope that I bring and the forgiveness that I offer and the freedom that's extended. Help people to meet Jesus and learn to follow Jesus. The word disciple means learner. It's somebody who has trusted their life to Jesus. And they realize that the best way to live is as Jesus is Lord of their life and Lord of this world. And then they're invited to get baptized as an expression of a public announcement that Jesus is leading the way. And that invitation to get baptized and to baptize wasn't just for those first disciples but it was for you and for me. It's why I consider it the privilege of my life to be able to baptize you when you choose to get baptized here at Active. And that's why we do baptism Sundays. But it's an even more privilege, a greater privilege for me to step aside to watch moms and dads, husbands and wives, friends and neighbors baptize those that they love. Because you've invested a whole lot more time than I have. And Jesus invites us, commands us to participate in baptism. And so if there is ever a moment in your family when someone that you love or someone that you're connected with wants to get baptized, you don't have to ask, can I baptize them? You just tell me, Frisch, get out of the way. I'm baptizing them. Because that is a command of Jesus. He wants you to participate in that. And you invested the time. 
Which is why I love those moments of just stepping back and waving the rally towel as you place your loved one under the water and bring them back up to signify that Jesus is Lord of their life. But then the very last words that Jesus shared. Matthew was there. He wrote these words down. Jesus said these words. I am with you always to the very end of the age. These words inspired those first century Christians because there is something about being with someone, right? Like music is better when you share it with someone. Movies are funnier or movies are stupider with someone, right? That moment when you did something really crazy and radical or that moment when you did something really difficult and illegal is only funny because you get to talk about it with the person you were with, right? Those you had to be there moments are moments you share with someone who was there with you. This is why life is better with people, with others. Life is better in relationship rather than in isolation. We are inspired in relationship. We are encouraged in relationship. We are motivated in relationship. We do well in relationship. And these last words of Jesus, man, they stirred up those first century Christians. They believed the words of Jesus that he is with them always. This wasn't just a statement that Jesus made, it was a promise. And the promise was fulfilled a couple of weeks later when all of the first century Christians got together in a room and Jesus promised that the Spirit of God would come upon them. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, or you're considering trusting Jesus as your Savior, here's the good news. That you don't have to do this on your own. This isn't about your behavior. It isn't about you modifying what you did before and now changing now. It isn't about your morality. It isn't about you doing it on your own. You following and trusting in Jesus means that you get all of the power of God within you. Peter put it this way. You have been given everything you need for life and godliness. And what God gives you through your relationship in Jesus Christ is the Spirit of God within you. Meaning that the same Spirit that resurrected Jesus from the dead lives within you. It's why you don't have to live a life that's addicted anymore. It's why you don't have to live a life of shame or embarrassment anymore. All of the power of God is within you when you trust in Jesus. And that was the promise of Jesus when he said, I'm with you always. And here's how it impacted those in the first century, those Christians in the first century. They began to live in such a way that it caught the attention of the people around them. Pliny the Younger was a Roman leader and historian who 
saw what the Christians were doing and it was irresistible and inspiring. They were taking care of widows and orphans and they were loving and serving those that were the least of these and they were caring for each other. They were the first to offer forgiveness and they were the first to offer ultimate freedom and they had this sacrificial love about them and so Pliny writes a letter to the Caesar and essentially in the letter he goes, what am I supposed to do with these Christians? Because they're not doing what everybody else in Rome does. However, the way that they're living is so inspiring that other people want to be a part of it and they're prioritizing this Jesus guy over you Caesar, so what should I do with them? It was powerful, and it was inviting, and it all comes back to the promise of Jesus, that he said, I am with you always. They believed if Jesus is with us, nothing can stop us, that our story will continue because it's the story that God is writing in this world about the kingdom of God. Here's what I love about what we just talked about, is that we don't have to go searching for what happened. We don't have to guess that they did certain things. All of it was written down. And it was written down in one specific letter, a letter called Revelation at the end of the scriptures, at the end of the New Testament, written by John who was there. And the really powerful thing about this letter of Revelation is that it didn't just focus on what was happening in that moment, but it actually told the story, a a bigger story, of God's work in every moment. In fact, Revelation tells the, the true story of the work of God in all of history. And this letter is a letter spoken by Jesus, written through John to the first century Christians, but to each person choosing to follow Jesus. And it's an invitation to follow. It's an invitation to do what Jesus is doing. It's an invitation to step into a bold, courageous life, a life filled with the power of God. One theologian put it this way, Revelation is a letter. It's an invitation through a letter that invites us to storm the gates of hell with ears to heaven. And hell isn't just a place that we can talk about that is after people die. Hell happens every day on earth. Hell happens in our families. Hell happens in our communities. Hell happens when life is taken. Hell happens when abuse takes place. And the people of God see it and do something about it. They bring the power of God into those moments, and maybe sometimes it's just all that we can do is just pray. And other times we can take really powerful action. And so starting today and over the next few weeks, I want us to spend some time in this letter of Revelation. I want us to read it. I want us to hear it. And I want us to listen and obey what Jesus has invited us to listen to and participate in. Now, I want to bring some clarity first before we dive in. I want to set the table for us today. First, it's called revelation, not revelations. It's not plural, right? Pet peeve, just a Mike Frisch pet peeve, all right? So if I hear you, call it revelations. I'm going to be really upset, okay? You know what's interesting about this letter is that it has been taken from us through really terrible teachings. 
Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus or you're new to this, you're intrigued by Jesus and you have heard of this letter revelation and it feels intimidating or it feels too much. It, it feels kind of mystical and magical. That's because it's been taken from us with really terrible interpretations. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus and it has this kind of weightiness and heaviness revelation does. It's because it's been taken from us through really terrible teachings. People have used it to scare others. People have used it to intimidate others. People have used it to talk about the end times and say, we need to see the signs of the end times. And then they use it to threaten. They use it to scare. We gotta be afraid. When Jesus, throughout the entire New Testament, the number one command he gave is, do not be afraid. And yet as Christians, we use his words to scare people. You know how you can get ready for the return of Jesus, which by the way, he promised he will return. And it also says in the scriptures that no man knows. So if we spend time trying to find the signs of Jesus's return, you're not following Jesus. You just have a hobby. You want to prepare yourself for the return of Jesus? Do one thing. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Participate in what he's doing. And the scriptures do have signs and wonders that it does point to, but Jesus also said that when you see signs and wonders, know that there's nothing new under the sun. Know that this is just a continuation of what has already happened. This letter has been taken from us with terrible interpretation and terrible fear. And the interesting thing is, is that when you read Revelation, it actually isn't that at all. Revelation is the letter that announces that it's all going to be okay. You want to know why? Because Jesus is Lord. John, who was there with Jesus, saw him die, saw him rise, lived life with him, writes this letter and invites us to not be afraid, to be, but to be courageous because Jesus is Lord. This letter invites us to ask really important questions like, what if we actually believed that Jesus could bring hope to those that we love? Like, what if you actually believed that Jesus could bring salvation to your husband or your wife, to your kids, to your neighbor, to your boss that makes you work six days a week, to your coworkers who don't do the work that they should do and you have to cover for them and you're frustrated with them? Like, what if we actually believe that God, who is God in Jesus, what if we actually believe that his power could actually change the lives of those around us by us choosing to live in a transformative sort of way? That's what Revelation invites us to consider. What if we believed that no one was off limits, but you saw everyone as someone that you could serve? Well, that got quiet. Because I think it's difficult for us to see people as those that we could serve instead of making them out to get us or us out to get them. Revelation is a letter that invites us to live with radical hospitality. And maybe you're wondering, what does radical hospitality look like? Radical hospitality looks like tinier fences and longer tables. We build tall fences and shorter tables, don't we? In our living room, in our, in our kitchen, we have a sign that says where everyone has a seat at the table. And the commitment for Tiffany and I and our family has always been that everybody is invited to come and sit at the table. The table of our lives. 
that nobody is off limits. Even if we see the world differently, even if we believe differently, when Jesus is Lord, we're invited to sit with those who see it differently and have dissent towards what it is that we believe. This is what the letter of Revelation invites us to consider. John, as he's writing this letter and writing down the words of Jesus, he's inviting us to understand that Jesus isn't an additive to life, that Jesus is the author and the perfecter and the giver of life. Jesus isn't Splenda in your iced tea, friends. (laughs) Jesus is the drink. Jesus is what fulfills. Maybe you've struggled with your faith in following Jesus. And perhaps, and I don't know you, and it might just be true of you, but perhaps it might be that Jesus is an additive to your life instead of your life. That Jesus is one of the things that is a part of your life, not your life. And that may be one of the reasons why faith is such a struggle for you. Because he has good teachings, but he's not Lord. He has good words, but he is not God. And the invitation of Revelation is to step into what gives you life. We are people who have life, who want life for others. Revelation is an invitation to fight for what gives life. And that's Jesus and his story. It's why we believe that you and I can tell better stories. So in order to understand this letter, before we dive deep into it over the next few weeks, I want to set the table for us today. And I want to share with you what this letter is. And then I want to share with you what this letter is not. And then I want to leave you with a really important question today. So the first thing. This letter, called Revelation, is a letter. It's a letter written by John. The same John who was at the cross. The same John who went to the tomb. The same John who took care of the mother of Jesus, after Jesus went back into heaven, that John. John was somebody who would not recant his faith. He was tortured for his faith. He would not die. And so they dropped him off on this island called Patmos. And it was on this island that that God gives him a vision, speaks to him, and he begins to write a letter to the first century Christians. And in it, in this letter, there are letters to seven different gatherings in the continent of Asia. This letter is like any other letter in the New Testament in the scriptures. It was written to a specific people in a specific time for a specific place, which means this, hear me, and I'm going to say this often in this series, revelation cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. What I mean by that is we like to read ourselves into the letter of Revelation. But this letter was written for us, not to us. Are you with me? It was written for us, not to us. We have made this letter of Revelation say what it was never meant to say, which here's an example. Did you know that when we talk about like end times, Jesus coming back, rapture, some of you are Christians, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are not Christians, you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. But this is like how how the world is going to end. Did you know that that whole conversation didn't start amongst Christians until the 19th century? Two centuries ago? But for 19 centuries... 
that the letter of Revelation was seen as a letter that was written for them, to them, and that we get to glean from it, but it actually doesn't speak about us directly. This letter was a letter of courage to the Christians in their time and in their world. And friends, they needed courage. It was written in 96 AD, three decades, after three decades of pain and torture and hate towards the people of God. It started in 65 AD with Emperor Nero, who decided to blame the Christians for burning down cities in Rome, when in fact it was his own men that did it. And so the people went after the Christians, because this is what the leader was saying to do. And Christians tried to remain faithful. They tried to remain brave. They thought if their faithfulness continued, it would actually stop the pain, but it didn't. Then in 70 AD, Paul, Peter, Timothy were publicly executed. These are like the heavy hitters of the first century Christian church. These are like the people that you would go to if you needed wisdom or knowledge. These were the ones that were writing letters and leading the church, and they were all publicly executed. Peter, who spent three years with Jesus and was telling the story of a resurrected resurrected Jesus, was killed. Paul, who saw Jesus and had his life changed by Jesus, was killed. Timothy, whose life was changed by Jesus because Paul knew him. He was executed. All of them in 70 AD were executed. And then in 92 AD, Domitian demanded the worship of everybody. You would be required, in order to buy and in order to sell, you would be required to take a pinch of incense when you would go into the city, throw it into the altar, and it would light up the altar, and you would shout, Caesar is Lord! And you would bend the knee. But the Christians were like, that's going to be a problem for us. Because Jesus is Lord. Philip, who you can read about in the letter that Paul or that Luke writes in Acts. Philip was actually publicly executed because he and his family, when they went to go and buy and sell, they would actually walk around the entrance of the city because they were unwilling to take the pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord because Jesus is Lord. And he and his wife and his children were all publicly executed because they decided to follow Jesus and not follow the empire and the emperor. To be a Christian in the first century was to put your life on the line. This is why this letter matters to those first century Christians, and it matters to us. They were not doing so great. And it's also why we can't read ourselves into this story and say it's about us. Because how cruel would it have been to receive this letter from John via the words of Jesus? And have the letter say to you, listen, I know things are really, really hard, but in 2,000 years, everything's going to get better. (laughs) That's not how God works. That's not how God speaks. That's not how God moves. And for us to read ourselves into this letter is foolish. It's ignorant. This letter was for them in their time. It was a letter of hope and a letter of comfort for them that can give us hope and comfort now. This is why, friends, we got to be really careful about saying that we are persecuted as Christians today. Because our lives are not on the line. There may be a day where that's the case, but it's not today. Listen, our, our preferences get pushed on. Our freedoms get questioned. 
but I can say Jesus is Lord and my life isn't threatened. And so we can get pushed on and we can get questioned, but these first century Christians, they were persecuted. They were poor, marginalized, mistreated, even killed for their faith. And this letter showed up to remind them that Jesus is Lord. Second thing about this letter is that it's prophecy. Prophecy means that it's an invitation to look and to see and to hear what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. This letter speaks to what's happening right now, but it also opens our eyes to the future, to what God will continue to do. Because remember, Revelation is a story of God's work in all of history. And you and I in the West, we think very linear. This happens and then this happens and then this happens. It's why when we read the letter, we can assume that it's speaking about what's going to happen next. But in reality, this letter is not written that way at all. It's written with pictures and it's written with images and it's written through like windows. So as you read this letter over the next few weeks, a really important question to ask is this, what does John see next? Pay attention to words like, I turned, and I saw, and I heard. John isn't telling a linear story. John's getting a vision from God, and he's going, oh, that. And then God goes, over here, over here. And he goes, oh, that. And then God goes, hey, I want you to see this. And then it's another window that he sees through. So it's not linear. For example, Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 1. We're going to spend some time in this in the, in the coming weeks, but listen to this section, what John sees. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head, and a tail, its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky, and it flung the them to the earth, and the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour the child the moment he was born. That story sound familiar? That's the Christmas story, friends. Very different than silent night, right? And what's interesting is this is included because God gives John a picture not of what's happening next, but John gives God, or God gives John a picture of what took place 90 years before this letter was even written. The birth of Jesus. John was taken there. So it's prophecy. It helps you to see and hear what God is up to now and where he's taking us. And then the third thing is that this letter is apocalyptic, which means that it's disclosing something. It's unveiling something. It's, it's showing us that things are not what they seem, that there's something else going on here. It's why this letter is filled with all sorts of images and pictures. We are, we are fact-based people. We want our facts, we want our figures— and we want it to make sense in front of us. 
But those in the first century, especially part of the Jewish community and culture, they saw things through images and pictures. And Revelation is filled with that. For example, people in Revelation are often represented as animals. They are talked about in the form of animals. And all John is doing is just writing down what he sees. Historical events are represented in the context of like natural phenomenon, like earthquakes and floods. Colors and numbers have meaning in Revelation. Images are meant to inform and ignite. And maybe you're like me, when you read that and you hear that, you go, well, why don't you just say it? Like, tell us what it is, right? I love what uh, Daryl Johnson, who's an author who wrote about Revelation, says about that. He says, imagery has the power to hook us deep inside. Images can quickly and effectively convey that which we struggle to put into words. Imagery goes beyond the intellect through the emotions into the imagination, grabbing hold of us at the deepest recesses of our being. Imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotions into the imagination, informing the intellect and igniting the emotions. So for example, what stirs your heart up more? Mary, who was a virgin, had the Spirit of God come upon her and she gave birth to the Son of God. Or, and there was a dragon in heaven that went after the woman giving birth, and she had the sun and the moon and the stars as her dress. And she gave birth to the one that would rescue and save the world, and it would give birth to those who would follow him, and they would storm the gates of hell with the power of heaven. Which one stirs your heart up more? Now listen, when, when it comes to Christmas Eve here at Active Church, we're still going to sing Silent Night, and we're going to have our candles, all right? And we're going to talk about Jesus in the manger, and we're going to talk about how Mary and Joseph traveled to Nazareth. We're going to talk about all of that. I'm not sure we'll add the dragon into the story, okay? But the point that, that John is sharing with us is that there's something else happening that maybe we've missed. There's something that goes deeper beyond what we can see and we can hear. And the reason why it's so foreign to us is we just haven't learned to learn that way. And then the last thing that this letter is really about is it's about anchoring us in the present. It helps us to see what's really going on around us. John, John as he writes, he says, listen, as you're there— I want you to see what's happening around you and what God is up to in the next moment. John's giving us the thing beneath the thing, right? And you know what I'm talking about? Like when you're angry. Anger is actually not your problem. It might be that deeper within you, you were mistreated by mom or by dad, or there's a bitterness that comes out in your anger. Are you with me? So what John is writing is like, hey, all of these things that you see that are hard and that are difficult, they're happening, but there is a thing beneath the thing. And all throughout the letter of Revelation, John points to the thing beneath the thing, and it's this, that there is an enemy of God, which means that there is an enemy of you. The writers of the scriptures give the enemy a name. The devil, Satan, 
the accuser. For some of you, you receive that really well. For some of you, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Now we're getting really kind of into the mystics and the mystery and the weird. I get it. I get it. But John is writing and helping us to see what's actually going on. And here's why this is so important. If we don't see that there is an enemy of God and an enemy of us, you know what we end up doing? We make one another the enemy. Suddenly, you're the bad guy. Or I'm the bad guy. This shows up in our political world, doesn't it? If we could just get our people elected into office, then everything will be okay. And John goes, that's cute. John says there is an enemy that is working against God and is working against the people of God. And John writes this letter so that we can see reality, so that we can see God, and so that we can see a future of hope. This is what this letter is all about. And it arrives, friends, in a very messy and crazy sort of world. A world that needs Jesus. And the letter of Revelation announces that there are those who will tell the story of Jesus boldly and courageously. And do you know who those people are? You. isn't about the next Bible study that you need to go to or the next church service that you need to participate in or the next prayer moment that you have. All of those are good and essential to following Jesus. But when those are the things that we do and it doesn't impact our relationships and it doesn't impact our family and it doesn't impact our neighborhood. John goes, it's time to circle back, friends. It's time to circle back and see what God is doing and how God has invited you to be the people who bring life because you have life from the giver of life. Are you with me? Revelation invites you and invites me to fight for the hearts of people. We fight for the hearts of people. Hear me. Not fight so that they will vote like me. Not fight so that they will believe like me. Revelation invites you and invites me to fight for the hearts people because Jesus fought for your heart and mine. He wants your heart. He wants to hold all of your hopes, all of your dreams, all of your passions, all of what you love in his hands because he loves you. And we, we represent God on this earth. If you don't like what's happening in our culture right now, it is not their fault. It's because we have missed our calling. If we don't like what's happening around us, 
it's because we have stopped fighting for the hearts of those around us. Jesus, when he is Lord, he changes everything. And John reminds us of the Jesus who is Lord of our life and how he fights. Listen to Revelation chapter 1 verse 5. Jesus Christ, and he gives kind of his resume here. He says, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. I love that, by the way. John's like, in case you forgot, in case you need to be reminded, or maybe you don't know, you're just intrigued by Jesus, and you really like his teachings, John goes, let me just tell you who he is. He is the witness of God. He came to communicate and demonstrate who God is and what God is like. He is the firstborn resurrected from the dead, which means this, that nobody else has done that, and nobody else will. Then he says, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. (laughs) And all of the people who are in charge politically in the United States and across the planet think they're in charge. (laughs) What John says is that's precious, but Jesus is Lord. And then he says, "Here's, here's how he fights. You ready for this? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. We do not fight as followers of Jesus as others fight. You know how we fight? Through sacrificial love and ultimate freedom. We fight through sacrificial love and ultimate freedom. James, the brother of Jesus, who didn't believe that Jesus was Lord, he thought he was crazy. Y'all have the brother in the family that you think is crazy. You know what I'm talking about, right? Stop elbowing them. That's not what I asked you to do. James, the brother of Jesus, didn't believe that he was God in the flesh, didn't believe that he was the Messiah, didn't believe he was Lord. When he died, he was like, told ya. Don't you love told ya people? I told ya. And then three days later, Jesus to his brother says, told ya. He resurrected from the grave. And that changed the life of James. He didn't call him his brother anymore. He called him his Lord. And James says in his letter, love covers a multitude of sins. That's how Jesus fights. Through unconditional sacrificial love. And hear me, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's how you fight. That's how you fight. No matter your role, no matter your authority, no matter your position, that's how you fight. You want to follow Jesus? Fight with sacrificial, unconditional love. If you're not fighting with those weapons, then you're just a believer. You're not a follower. And then John says that he fights with ultimate freedom. Paul put it this way. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. He wants you to experience a life where you're not always looking 
back, a life where you're not living in regret, a life that isn't ashamed of what you've done because you have been forgiven and you have made restitution, you have lived in repentance to the best of your ability. And I know that sometimes our past mistakes cannot be reconciled with the person that we have harmed or the person that we have hurt. I get it, but we are people, when we are calling Jesus Lord and following Jesus, we are people that will do whatever is necessary to make sure that we are at peace with all men and women. Because we want them to experience ultimate freedom. That's what Jesus brings to you and brings to me. Ultimate freedom is peace deep within your soul. I don't have to worry about what you're saying about me. And you don't have to worry about what I'm saying about you. Because ultimate freedom means that we talk out our issues. Ultimate freedom means that we live in the rhythm of the kingdom of God. Ultimate freedom means that we extend forgiveness and we are kind and compassionate to each other. In the Old Testament, it says that we love mercy and we walk humbly with our God. And in amongst all of that, we participate in justice. And I love that justice comes when we love mercy and walk humbly. This is how Jesus fights. And this is how you are invited to fight. This is the story that Jesus tells. The question I have for you today is this. What story do you want to tell? What story do you want to tell? Because you have the option to tell the story of Jesus is Lord, or you have the option to tell the political story that many of you are telling. You have the option to tell about ultimate freedom, or you have the option to tell about America freedom. You have the option to tell the story of sacrificial love, or you have the option to tell the story of, hey, we have to make sure that all these people do what we've done. The reality of the letter of Revelation is that it was so hopeful and helpful in the hands of first century Christians and friends, what we found out today and what we'll find out over the next few weeks is this letter is so helpful and hopeful for us today. What story? What story? What story do you want to tell? May we choose the story of sacrificial love. And may we choose the story of ultimate freedom. And that story begins with Jesus on the cross. And that's why we're going to end our time in communion here in the room. Communion that represents Jesus, not just saying what he will do, but doing it. So I want to pray some words over you. And I want to dismiss you to take communion with us. So Heavenly Father, may we tell the story that you have created us to tell. If we 
or Christians in the room or watching online. May we follow and fight for the hearts of people instead of fighting in all of the ways that are not helpful or hopeful or good or godly. And if we are not Christians, we're considering Jesus. We're intrigued by Jesus. May this be a day where we can move one step closer to discovering what life could potentially be like when Jesus is Lord. And may the story that the people of Active Church tell be the story that was being written in the first century and in the second century and all throughout history. May we be people that join in the greater story to see God at work, to know God's at work, and to participate in that work. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things and together we say amen and amen and amen.